it might be that there's a competitor of the company that's actually a better investment than the one you're looking at. It might be that if you study the competitors, you'll realize that, uh, that your company isn't as well positioned as you thought it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Today we talk with Marcelo Lima. And Marcelo is really interesting to talk to because he has kind of a similar backstory as I do, actually. So it started out as Buffett investors, really deep value, and then really were interested in the internet and technology. So we talk mostly about software as a service and different internet trends, and not going to give them away, but we talk about two companies pretty in depth. All right, enjoy this one. On this episode of the Investing City Podcast, we're pleased to have Marcelo Lima. So thanks for being here, Marcelo. Thank you, Ryan, for having me. Great. So why don't we just start with a little bit of your background? Just tell us kind of how you got interested in investing and a little bit of just the background. Sure. So I've always been interested in business and I never really knew how to express that. So when I was in uh, in college, I decided to study uh, operations research and industrial engineering because it was sort of the closest type of engineering, uh, the closest to business that I could find. And once I graduated, I was actually a a computer software developer for several years, but always very interested in business. So I read a lot of biographies on entrepreneurs and just trying to figure out how people, uh, how successful people became successful. And Really, the, the watershed moment for me was in, in 2004 when I read Warren Buffett's biography, the uh, Roger Lowenstein one, and that's when I, I sort of learned this systematic way of uh, learning about businesses and analyzing companies, and, and I realized that you could sort of do that as a career, which is something that I didn't know about before. Yeah, that's amazing. So how did you actually originally find that book? Yeah, it's funny. I was at a party and we were talking about entrepreneurship and, and successful people. And a friend mentioned to me, well, if you, if you actually want to uh, read about somebody who's really successful, you should read about Warren Buffett. Go read this biography. And it's kind of ironic because this friend wasn't really a big fan of, of Buffett and not a, not a follower of, of Buffett's at all. So it was, it was kind of interesting, but I, I actually bought the book, <laughs> kept it on my bookshelf for, I don't know, a year or so or, or several months. Uh, and then one day I picked it up and it just hit me in the head. It was, it was just sort of this um, epiphany. So it was, it was very it was kind of dramatic. Uh, I, I, you know, my friends joke that it, I can sort of divide my life between before Buffett and after Buffett for that reason. <laughs> so when you're reading that book, what, what really hit you? Was it kind of a particular concept or something like that? Well, 
I think a lot of things about Buffett's life are incredibly remarkable. And it's, it's a little bit surprising to me that it's, even though he's extraordinarily famous, even though 40, 50,000 people go to Omaha every year, every, every, even though he's in the media, I still feel that he's very misunderstood and that a lot of people don't understand the uh, sort of the background uh, and, and how he became successful. What I think is really re remarkable is he worked really hard from uh, from the time he was uh, a, a young kid. Uh, as a teenager, as you know, he had the newspaper delivery route. He used to sell uh, six packs of Coke and you know to, to, to people stuck in traffic and and go about town uh, in Omaha. And um, he would operate the pinball machines. He had a uh, golf ball rescue operation. Uh, he had all these little entrepreneurial activities. And, and by the time he was um, in high school, I, I don't know if it was senior year in high school, he, he had been filing his tax returns for many years. He's already earning more money than, than his high school teachers. Uh, so very hardworking guy. And, and so he, he really started with nothing. And then the, the whole process of studying with Ben Graham and, and visiting companies, uh, visiting Geico over the weekend and learning about that, I just found the whole the whole story so compelling, and uh, and and I found it very intellectually appealing that one could do something like that, uh, you know, study businesses and and analyze companies for a living and and do something incredible, which is what he did with Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, I didn't really know all about those entrepreneurial pursuits, so that's super interesting. And so you read this book, and then what were the steps that you took after that moment to kind of put what you had in your mind into practice? Well, oh, that's a complicated um, answer, but uh, long story short is I, I started devouring everything I could about, about Buffett. So I guess the first step was I went back and I said, well, he learned a lot from this guy, Ben Graham. Let me go read everything about Ben Graham. So started reading security analysis, intelligent investor, and a bunch of other things. And, and then I started Googling and, and trying to find out, it, well, is there a world of this beyond this, right? Is there anything out there? And I quickly found the uh, Columbia University SEMA conference, it was called back then, which was the, the students value investing conference that was, it's always, it's always on around February of every year. And, and I, I immediately signed up for that. So, you know, I discovered Buffett, this is like early 20, 2004, and I signed up for the SEMA conference in, in early 2005. So by the time I got there, I had already read so much. I, I probably had, had already read every single one of Buffett's letters from the partnership years, you know, 1956 to 69. And then what I did is I, I printed out, uh, this is, remember this is 2005 this is before the ipad so i printed out every single berkshire hathaway letter on i actually got a printer that does it double-sided i put three ring uh, three three punched hole uh, three hole punched paper in the in a printer and i put it all all the letters in a in a binder like two binders you know thousands of pages and i read every single berkshire hathaway letter and and so sort of accumulating all this stuff from ben graham and buffett uh by the time i got to the Columbia University uh, conference, I, I, I sort of had this thing in, 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 in my head. It was top of mind for me. And I just remember getting there and seeing hundreds of students and then all the practitioners. Uh, so I remember I, I got on the elevator and 
looked looked next to me and and I noticed realized it was Jim Chanos. Uh, I'm like, oh, Jim Chanos is here. And then I, you know, get off the elevator and I walk over and, and I see Bill Ackman and I see um, uh, Joel Greenblatt and uh, uh, Marty Whitman. So it was kind of cool for me to go and, and see all these people in person. I'm like, oh yeah, well, these people actually exist and there's actually a huge practice around this idea of value investing. Like I just had no idea uh, until then. Wow. So you have this deep dive experience where you're just going for it and really understanding everything about Buffett. And at this point, did you have a lot of business background? And how did, because some of the stuff about, you know, accounting and goodwill gets a little bit esoteric in all those letters. So just talk about how you really dug to understand all that. Yeah, uh, good question. So, you know, by then I I was so at the time I was working in the finance department of a, of a real estate investment company. So working very closely with the folks in the acquisition department, I was uh, modeling a lot of the shopping center acquisitions that we were making. And I was also working closely with the CFO. So I was, uh, I, I was religiously reading the financial times every day, Wall Street, Wall Street Journal every day, you know, trying to emulate again, uh, Buffett and Munger in, in that respect. So I was, very much uh, sort of attuned to that. Uh, I didn't know accounting um, as well as I eventually would. And what happened was, I think the I think it was 2005. I started going to Omaha, I believe, uh, for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. And I remember running into a gentleman, and I said, "Well, how can I learn more accounting?" And he says, "Well, you should go study the CFA curriculum." So of course, I went out and I got the books and I started st studying the CFA. Uh, curriculum, which is very helpful because it teaches you how to read financial statements and and and, and all that. Uh, so yeah, the by this point you could you could Google and and find things out right if you didn't know what goodwill meant and all that. So um, it, it is pretty esoteric, but um, you know he Buffett keeps things reasonably simple in his letters, although he does have some digressions into these these more exotic topics, but. It was, uh, yeah, it was a learning process. And I don't, I'm pretty sure I've read some of the old letters since. I'm sure that if I read them again today, it would be a completely different experience because of the uh, sort of the background that I have now, right, compared to what I had back then. Totally. And so you mentioned that you were in software development before this, and then you read all this Buffett stuff. So you kind of have this juxtaposition, internet background and Buffett, which historically he's kind of straight away from technology. So just talk a little bit about those two sides of the coin. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I feel that um, the having studied Buffett so deeply and then being sort of brainwashed um, and I, I say brainwashed in, in, um, uh, I, I don't say that, you know, in, in a bad way. I think it's sort of a good thing, but it, there's also a negative side to it, which is you become a little bit too uh, too much a part of that community, and you, you you stop questioning things. So, for example, as you mentioned, Buffett historically has been very much against investing in technology because it moves very fast. And sure, that's true. But that's also a short, sort of shortcut into not looking at technology at all. And I feel that a lot of us, value investors, myself included, uh, during those years, 
failed to appreciate uh, the incredible businesses being built in technology. And I remember, you know, I started attending also the Value Investing Congress around the same time, and I, I, I attended almost every single one of them because I wanted to learn so much, uh, so much more. And I remember, I think, I think I saw, I know I saw one, I might've seen two short pitches on salesforce.com. And the story, if I recall, was similar. You know, this is, this company is trading at a price to earnings multiple that's, I don't know, 100x, something, some crazy number. Uh, growth is gonna stop. I don't, I don't remember the details of the short pitches, but they were all very skeptical that uh and basically valuation driven and of course today we know uh those pitches were completely dead wrong and there was this lack of understanding of the economics of software as a service and uh, there was also i think an overemphasis on financial statement analysis and an uh, an underemphasis on the more qualitative and big picture aspects and in, in, in terms of the size of the market, the growth ahead, the uh, the the uh, the ability of these companies to keep growing for a very long periods of time, and then to eventually generate uh, tremendous free cash flows, as is the case for Salesforce today. That, but that's just one example. So it, it was um, it, it was a long period until I started eventually coming out of that uh, fog, if you will, of of not believing that technology can be uh, a phenomenal way to to invest yeah and just talk a little bit about kind of your process of coming to that point of coming out of that because like you said when you steep yourself so deeply in value investing in buffett you kind of have this mindset that uh you know internet is kind of this thing that um maybe valuations are unsustainable so just talk about kind of the steps you took to see things in a different light. Yeah, so that was a long and painful process. But what happened was roughly, you know, several years later, there's, there's been this narrative of everything is getting disrupted, right? And, and I didn't understand what exactly that meant. Uh, if, you, if you've been to, to Omaha and read Buffett's letters, He's never mentioned Clay Christensen, and um, he's never mentioned Innovator's Dilemma. He's never mentioned LTV to CAC, you know, uh, lifetime value of the customer to customer acquisition cost. All, all these things are sort of more more technology things, and so that whole framework and way of looking at the world was was I think uh, severely lacking from from the stuff that we were learning from Buffett and, and the whole community uh, around there. So. So I started, you know, let me try to figure out what this, what this stuff means. And uh, I, I started by following, um, I, so I got on Twitter and I started following every venture capitalist um, that, that was known. And then I started listening to all their, all their podcasts and, and really trying to understand uh, what's behind all this. Uh, and then I read the Clay Christensen books as well, the Innovator's Dilemma, Innovator's Solution. And, and what I realized is, and this might be a little bit um, you know, over the top, but I, I, I truly believe this, that a lot of the venture capitalists, uh, the more successful ones out there, are, I, I believe, much better business analysts than some of the best business analysts that I had met up to that point. So I, I just felt that the VCs really understood 
And, and especially this is true about not only the internet world, but they also understand traditional businesses very well because those are the businesses that are being disrupted by their, the, the companies that they're funding, right? So, so this was very surprising to me. And, and I clearly remember uh, one interview with, with Mark Andreessen where he says, you know, Warren Buffett bought Heinz ketchup because he's making a bet that ketchup is never going to change. Uh, and we're making exactly the opposite bet. We're, bet. we're making the bet that the companies that we're funding today will go out and disrupt all the incumbents out there. And that change is going to happen. And I, I you know, it was, it's kind of scary to hear that, right? If you're, I wasn't invested in Heinz back then or Kraft Heinz or, uh, but it, it, when, you, when you think of the world that way, if you don't understand what's being funded that's going to disrupt you, uh, it becomes very risky to, uh, to, to, to be an investor. So I decided at that point that I really had to become an expert in all of the things that were up and coming in sort of the new technology. Gotcha. So that was sort of the, the genesis of that. Yeah, that's great. And just as you talk about that, I'm thinking first you did a really deep dive on Buffett and understood everything there and then technology and really understanding the venture capitalist ecosystem and how funding works. What are the things that you're digging into right now? Well, right now it's, it's really, uh, as you know, just before we, we started recording this, I was actually watching the keynote for, uh, you know, Salesforce is having its Dreamforce in San Francisco right now. I was watching the keynote and sort of my process is really trying to understand uh, what these, both the enterprise software companies and the consumer internet companies are doing and who, you know, who are the emergent competitors? What are the startups out there that are still not public that are being funded? Uh, which companies are these large companies betting on? A lot of them have investment funds and they'll fund a lot of these different startups. There are, uh, as you know, a lot of these companies are platforms where they have enormous ecosystems around there, around them of uh, applications, application developers, system integrators, uh, partners. So understanding all of that, understanding the landscape, the competitive landscape, understanding what's new that's getting funded by, by all the different VCs, all of that is extremely uh, uh, you know, rich and time consuming and, and, and can take up, uh, I, I guess it's a full-time job and then some. So that's sort of how I'm, I'm investing my time right now is really trying to understand the landscape so that I can have a view as to where the world is going towards and, and I can invest appropriately. Yeah, I, I totally hear you on it's a full-time job in itself, just understanding the competitive landscapes of these companies. So let's actually just break down an example. So is there a company where you've really been looking at the landscape and you feel like you have a decent understanding of it? Yeah, so... One, um, one, I think, good example is Shopify. You know, Shopify is a, a, a disruptor in a way, right? There's, if you look at the market for e-commerce software, there are many large players out there. Um, uh, Demandware was acquired by Salesforce. 
It's now part of their commerce cloud. Uh, there is Magento, which was acquired by Adobe. Um, and there's uh, BigCommerce, WooCommerce. There's a number of these hybrids, et cetera. And Shopify started out as, as, as most people know, it was, you know, Toby Lutke was trying to sell uh, snowboards and he built his own software for it and then decided that the software was really the product and not the snowboard shop. And, you know, Shopify is, is very interesting because it seems to me that their playbook is sort of uh, textbook, uh, uh, you know, low-end and new market disruption, you know, Clay Christensen's uh, Innovator's Dilemma idea, where uh, low-end disruption because you start out with a lower price point, a product that is inferior across many vectors, but eventually the product gets better and it's good enough for a cohort of users. It starts getting better. It starts earning revenue and investing in R&D, and then it moves up market. And what, what Shopify has done is, you know, they have this idea that if you are an accountant, you cannot stay in one platform throughout your entire, uh, as, as you grow it as a business. So you might, start, you might start in Excel, and then you maybe move to QuickBooks, and then maybe, maybe move to Oracle Financials. And they want to prevent that replatforming. They want you to start in Shopify as a small store. And then when you become huge and you're selling a billion dollars of, of merchandise, you can, still, you can still be on Shopify. Like you don't have to move anywhere else. And, and that's what they've done. So they've also created their business in a way that has this uh, enormous partner ecosystem dynamics uh, and an entire economy built on top of Shopify, and they are, by all accounts, taking share from the incumbents. So it's, uh, it's a very interesting situation where they seem to be the, the, the only publicly traded uh, independent e-commerce software of consequence today. Everybody else is either privately held or part of some, some conglomerate, and they are really focused on solving merchant um, pain points, uh, and they're, they're merchant first. And, and that seems to be, that along with the, the rest of their strategy seems to be uh, an enormous competitive advantage. Yeah, so love this company and I've followed it very closely since um, the IPO. And actually I was talking to a friend recently and there's an interesting point. So if you look at Chinese e-commerce companies, like there's one out there named Baosun, and a lot of people say like, oh, it's the Chinese Shopify, even though the business model is fairly different, but the Baosun works with very large merchants. And if you look at the take rate that it kind of on total gross merchandise volume for Baosun, it's about eight to 10%. And if you look at Shopify, actually, even though there's not really like a full on take rate, something where with like Amazon third party. But if you look at the subscriptions and merchant solutions on a basis of GMV, Shopify is only around 2%. So it's pretty interesting that they could really expand that. Um, anyway, that was just something that I was thinking about as you brought up Shopify. So the obvious thing that is brought up when you talk about these companies is valuation because Shopify, I don't know what the market cap is right now, maybe 40 billion. So just talk a little bit about your thoughts around that. Yeah. So uh, that ties into your previous comment, by the way. So 
my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Baosun uh, provides, uh, sort of brings customers to their merchants uh, in Tmall. Is that right? Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a piece of their business. So I, I'm not super familiar with Baosun at all. So if that's the case, I would imagine that part of the reason why the, the take rate is elevated is because they attract a lot of customers to your platform, to your to you as a merchant. So, for example, if I go and sell and sell on Etsy or eBay, the take rate will be, I think, either high single digits or or low teens or somewhere like that, depending on how you how you look at it. On Amazon, it's it's even higher than that. And and the reason is those are those are marketplaces where you have a lot of liquidity and you have a lot of customers. Uh, when you start a Shopify store, though, you you start with zero customers, right? So there's you have to invest a lot of money in customer acquisition, whether it's Facebook ads, uh, Instagram ads, uh, email marketing, et cetera. So there's this big delta there in, in take rate, and I think a lot of it is is what people call demand generation. So the way I see it, and this is a this ties into your question about valuation. So I think the two key variables in my mind for Shopify are uh, GMV growth. Uh, so how big can their base of GMV get? Uh, and then the second variable is how far can their take rate go? If you look at, so their take rate right now is, is almost exactly like 2.6% of GMV if you count you know, all, all the revenue line items and divide that by GMV and it's been, it's been around 2.6% for several, for a few years now. Um, and this is despite the fact that they've added things like capital and uh, Shopify capital, Shopify shipping, et cetera. Um, and, and it's probably because they've kept Shopify plus at a very low price, right? It's 25 basis points. I'm assuming you're a big merchant at that point. It's 25 basis points of your GMV. So, and, and that's, a lot lower than the competition. So Demandware starts, I think it starts at 100 basis points of GMV, so it's like four times more expensive. So I think there's a few drivers of take rate over time, and one could just be uh, you know, pricing power. They could raise their prices over time as they've, as they've done historically a little bit. Not too much, but they have raised prices over time. And then they could also segment their... Uh, their Shopify Plus offering, this has been mentioned previously, where perhaps the very largest merchants get to pay a little bit more and Shopify gets to share in that success a little bit more, like which is the business model of some of these other platforms. Uh, but then they could also just develop, keep on developing more solutions to, to help these merchants run their businesses. And as they do that, they will be compensated for it. So if they develop now uh, fulfillment, right? Shopify uh, fulfillment network. That's going to increase the take rate for merchants who take on that solution. Uh, perhaps they could, and this is just pure speculation on my part. But for example, Shopify is an early customer of Twilio Flex, which is a, uh, a fully electronic SaaS-based call center solution, which is just phenomenal, right? It's just a phenomenal advance over traditional call centers. You can uh, you have real-time sentiment analysis, transcriptions. You have you can design your own um, IVR visually. It's 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 really cool. Now imagine if Shopify turned and said, "Listen, we've we we've 
figure out a way to productize this. And now we're going to sell this Shopify call center product to all of our merchants. And we're going to help you provide phenomenal customer service to your customers without, and we're going to have sort of this economics, uh, economies of scale because we have, you know, thousands of agents and we're going to allocate uh, and you pay us and we'll allocate a certain number of agents to your store and we'll train them uh, with the script and we're gonna, it's all going to be integrated with your customer data. So when one of your customers calls in, they see the agent sees all the information and the order history and all that. So, and again, this is pure speculation on my part, but I, that's something that they could potentially offer down the road that would increase the take rate. So there's a, a number of things that they could do. Uh, so when I think about Shopify valuation, uh, they've talked about aspirationally having an operating margin of at least 20% over time at maturity. So th those are sort of the parameters that I use to value the company. I think about how big can it be in terms of GMV? What can the take rate be? And that'll determine the revenues. Uh, how do they get there, uh, in both in terms of GMV and in terms of take rate, right? That's very important. You can't just wave your hands and say, well, they'll have larger GMV. You have to think about how do they do that? And, and then can they reach that, operate, that operating margin? And so when you do that and, and you build a, a discounted cash flow model, uh, does the current price make sense relative to that future value of the business? Yeah, love that answer. So let's get into some of the specifics around GMV and take rate, just to kind of understand where you're thinking about this. So I don't know, GMV is maybe 50 billion for the last 12 months and take rates 2.6%. So just talk about where you think that those can get. Yeah, those... Um, I would be very surprised if, if take rate doesn't rise over time, uh, and, and the, the reason I say that is, I, I think it just makes a lot of sense that if you have a, uh, if you have a, power, a, a platform like Shopify that is becoming increasingly more um, feature rich and uh, solving more and more pain points for the merchant, and I'm just talking about sort of the basic platform, not even the add-ons, right? Like, like capital and shipping and things that they charge money for. But as they keep on improving the, the basic product, they should be able to raise prices or at least uh, segment the, the pricing list and, and, and think, uh, create different tiers of pricing to get more value, get a, a better take rate from, from merchants. So I would be very surprised if take rate doesn't, uh, doesn't grow over time. And then as far as GMV, you know, it's, it's, uh, this is a, the, ta you know, a lot of, I'm reminded of, uh, Barry McCarthy, uh, the, uh, he used to be the CFO of, of Netflix and, and then the CFO of Spotify. And now he's going to be, he's going to retire and, and stay on the board. He used to joke that, um, the question I hate the most is the question of TAM, total addressable market, because a lot of times these new markets, and, and this is also, by the way, textbook Clay Christensen, right? Uh, he says that when, when you have, a um, a disruptive innovator who's doing new market disruption, uh, by definition, that market doesn't exist. In this case, markets, the market does exist, right? It's commerce. But there's also uh, a piece of it that does not exist, which is Shopify is making it so easy for people to become entrepreneurs and, and open a shop on, online that the, the, not only is the market enormous, uh, 
and and I think big enough for Shopify to to realize its full value. But also there there are uh, it, it, they are expanding the TAM, if you will, with every feature that they that they add because they they are making it easier and easier. They're lowering the barriers to entrepreneurship. And there's a there's a recent example. Uh, and let me I'm going to pull this up as as we as we talk here because I, I just think that this is absolutely remarkable. There's a recent example of a store that uh, this was a a YouTube. Um, a YouTube, a YouTuber who has a uh, a makeup a makeup shop, and when he launched it on Shopify, it just it crashed the whole thing because the volume of of demand was was way above anything else that they've seen. Uh, do you know what what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've heard about this. I can't remember the name, but yeah, I heard about this. Yeah, I, I had it. I'm trying to find the uh, the thing that I saved here, but in any case, this was. Uh, this was just remarkable, and and this is a this is not a traditional uh, shop, right? This is not something that already existed that's just moving to Shopify. This is a, a completely new. Uh, this is a completely new phenomenon that that wouldn't have existed. And the same thing is true, by the way, with with uh, you know like Kylie Jenner and 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 uh, you know Drake and and all these other folks who are selling things that previously. You know, we're not talking about Ben and Jerry's here or, or Nike, right? We're talking about this whole new uh, cohort of, of, you know, of pe- folks selling merchandise who never would have sold merchandise before, perhaps if it weren't for Shopify uh, making it so easy. Totally. So when you saw the announcement for the fulfillment network, what were your thoughts about that? Well, I thought it was extraordinarily exciting. Um, I, I was a little bit... Um, I, I was a little bit. Uh, uh, I, I was wondering how the market would react to it because there's uh, there's an element of, hey, we're going to spend a billion dollars to do this, and it's going to take several years for it to be profitable. And markets can either reward you for it or punish you for it. And uh, I, I I'm firmly in the camp of you know the, the, this uh, you know, Tom Russo idea of I like the companies that can sort of burden their income statement in the short term and. and and uh, can withstand the pain for the benefit of long-term strategy. I think from a strategic standpoint, it's absolutely the, the right thing to do because it solves an enormous pain point for, for merchants. It's, it's very merchant first. Uh, and, and I think it builds this enormous competitive advantage over time. And same thing with the Six River acquisitions, by the way, obviously the, you know, the robots that, are, that they're, they're going to put in the, in the fulfillment centers. So, so I think it, it was absolutely brilliant, and we'll see how how it plays out. Um, but the idea is is I think very very smart. Great. So let's talk. Let's back up a little bit and just talk about when you first found out about the company, how you found out, and then how you went about researching it. I think it's really interesting just learning about somebody's idea generation process and then how they attack a company. Yeah, I don't, you know, honestly, I don't remember how I found out about the company. I've been, I've obviously heard about it for a long time, and it's a little bit like, um, like going from not looking at software to looking at software as uh, an investable uh, asset class, if you will. Several years ago, you're always sort of hitting yourself in the head, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm so, I'm so dumb. Why didn't, I, why didn't, didn't I look at this before, right? So. 
when I finally came around to, to studying Shopify deeply, I, what I typically do is I just try to be a sponge and absorb everything I can. So I try to read all the transcripts, uh, historically IPO perspectives. Uh, I try to attend events um, by the company, uh, listen to interviews with, with the uh, executives, and then, of course, have also a, a, a big picture uh, view, uh, not to have this sort of silo mentality, uh, but try to really understand the class of the class of organisms that we're dealing with. I think of this like in ecological terms, like you know, this this is a certain type of, of predator. Uh, let me look at who else is there in the jungle uh, uh, trying to trying to find trying to eat the same prey and uh, try to understand who those competitors are and how those those uh, organisms are interacting with this ecosystem. So who who are the competitors? Uh, what are they doing? What are sort of their strengths and weaknesses and, and their uh, constraints? W what are the business model differences? And and really try to get like sort of this holistic picture of the industry, because um, I think only then you can you can reach a conclusion uh, as to whether this company has a good strategy or bad strategy, a you know sustainable path to profitability or not, et cetera. So I think that that's sort of the general approach. Yeah, and. If you were to give somebody advice who is looking to start investing in software, what would be um, kind of the thing that you'd let them know? I, I think I think this this point about having uh, a, a holistic picture as much as you can uh, is is an important point. I think this is true about investing in general. Is it's very easy to it's very easy to uh, have that first first conclusion bias where I'm looking at this one company and I fall in love with it and I study everything I possibly can about this one company. And, I, and, and then you forget to look at the big picture, the industry, the competitors, and, and really take a dispassionate view of the whole, uh, of the whole competitive landscape. It might be that there's a competitor of the company that's actually a better investment than the one you're looking at. It might be that if you study the competitors, you'll realize that, uh, that your company isn't as well positioned as you thought it was, or or it's not doing something that is as unique as you thought it was. So I think really having that broader perspective uh, across other companies as well that are in the same uh, business is, is very important. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point. Um, are there any other companies that you've been digging into lately? Well, I think one that's interesting is... Um, is uh, Slack, uh, and I think it's really interesting because, oh, you know, the company I, I think is is phenomenal, uh, but I think it's also very interesting because it's it's a little bit up in the air. There's a obviously this overhang of Microsoft and Microsoft Teams, and uh, whether that is going to destroy Slack or whether it's going to be uh, a, a, whether it's a much larger market where more than one company. Can 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 exist. Um, I I tend to think it's the latter uh, that this is a very large market and, and you can you can have more than one player. It's not going to be a winner take all uh, situation. So, but it's a bit of a, a battleground right now. And the you know Microsoft recently announced that it has 20 million daily active users, and then there's all this argument back and forth as to whether those are real daily active users or not, and how how 
engaged those users are relative to, to Slack users. So uh, that's an interesting company. And, you know, there, there's a, an interesting interview with uh, Stuart Butterfield, the, one of the founders of Slack, and he says that he believes, and this is, you know, sounds grandiose, but given, given where the industry Slack is in, which is sort of, you know, uh, workplace collaboration, he says eventually we could become larger than Microsoft. And, you know, it, it'll take decades to get there for sure. But if they do a good enough job and, and survive, right, and adapt and, and build their products right and make the right acquisitions and all that, uh, that, that could eventually be true. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I haven't heard that interview, but I think it would be an interesting thought experiment to kind of go through Slack in a similar way where you're talking about Shopify and how they might kind of integrate call centers through Twilio's infrastructure are there any things that you can kind of foresee Slack doing in terms of like that optionality? Well, I, I think what is, is, uh, is misunderstood about Slack, uh, and this is just from me talking to folks who are not, uh, who haven't really done a, a deep dive into it and are not necessarily investors, but are perhaps just users, is, you know, most folks will say something like, well, I, I've used it. I don't understand why it's it's better than uh, WhatsApp. A lot of people are using, uh, at least a lot of folks that I know, are using WhatsApp on the desktop and they have WhatsApp groups and they actually use WhatsApp for work. And uh, what I try to explain is that the chat functionality is maybe 1% of what Slack does. And to really understand the value of Slack, you have to understand the uh, the integrations that it offers for very large enterprises and sort of the workflow improvements. And what it really does is it leverages your time. So, and it leverages your investment in technology. So if you have a uh, $100 million budget for IT and you're a large enterprise, uh, Slack might be 1% or 2% of that budget, but it'll leverage the other 98% because it'll connect all these different applications inside Slack. You don't have to do context switching you can quickly access information and, and update information inside all those other apps that you have, whether it's your HR system, your ERP system, your CRM system, et cetera, uh, all within Slack. And it, the, once you see it in action and you understand the use cases for very large enterprises and the adoption of large enterprises, you know, most people forget that the large enterprise segment of Slack, with sort of the adoption, the growth in that customer base was 75% year over year in the last quarter. So it's the large enterprises on Slack are growing much faster than overall Slack users. Um, then, then you see how compelling this is. Um, so I, I don't know, uh, you know, they, they could go in many different directions. I think they could go, for example, in the direction of Atlassian, where they will acquire and build and integrate different applications over time to strengthen the offering and create uh, create a, a bigger bundle of, of office collaboration. And I don't know in which direction that'll go exactly, but I just, you know, Stuart Butterfield talks about this vision of, of eliminating email internally, right, inside each company. And, I, and, and that he thinks that in the future, uh, every company will have a tool like Slack or something like it. And, and I, once you see it in action, I think that is absolutely a no-brainer. Uh, so really, it's, it's, uh, if, we all, if we agree that that is the future, and I, I personally believe it is, 
then it, it really is Slack's um, uh, you know prize you know, to, to go and, and, and grab. Yeah, it's really interesting that there is this big dark cloud over Slack when Teams comes out with more information. Uh, so how do you think about kind of breaking down Teams versus Slack? Is it the integrations mainly? Is that what you've been trying to understand? Yeah, it's tricky because there is a lot more information, I think, on Slack than it, than there is on Teams. So um, it, it's it's a little bit nebulous when it comes to to, to what exactly are are the users on Teams using Teams for, and uh, how how there's there's not that much that is that is uh, that's out there. So the way I see it is. You know, obviously, Teams has a, sort of this home court advantage because if you have a certain tier of Office 365 subscription, Teams is bundled in and it's essentially free. And you can double click on it, open it, and make a quick video chat or or, uh, or audio call. Uh, and and it's it's very easy to do that. Um, and then, so I've, I I know companies that use both because they'll they'll use Teams for that type of use case, but then they'll use Slack for everything else. Uh, and Slack has a lot more integrations than than Teams does, so I think it it'll the way that I believe it'll play out is that um, is that there's going to be room for more than one company. By the way, there's we haven't even talked about Facebook Workplace, which is a su surprisingly successful um, Slack and Teams uh, competitor, which is uh, which is it's it's an enterprise software as a service offering from Facebook. And I've also heard that that product is, is used in parallel with Slack. It's also not a substitute for Slack. It has different use cases in Slack. So it, it might be the case that folks will end up using more than one of these. So uh, all of these large enterprises that Slack has been growing uh, into, they are all Office 365 users. And, and I, it wouldn't, we don't know what that Venn diagram looks like, the overlap between who uses Teams in those companies and Slack. Uh, but I, I would believe that there is a big overlap of usage and that these products maybe complement each other because they are used for different things. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. Hey, so don't want to keep you too long. So just one last question to end. Are there any things that you do on a daily basis that have contributed to your success? Woof. I don't know, Ryan. Um, I, I think just... Uh, just reminding myself that uh, of this idea of uh, you know strong opinions loosely held and and uh, uh, it's always day one perpetual beta um, this idea that in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities and then in the expert's mind there are very few uh, I guess try to uh, stay humble with your opinions because I, I'm very willing to change my mind very quickly and and be convinced of something 180 degrees uh, removed from what I believe today. So if I find new evidence and new information, so I just get just having that, uh, try to have that mental flexibility to, to change your mind quickly if you, if you find new information. Uh, I, I love this quote, right, that most people, um, when, when faced with the, when, with the choice between changing their minds and proving that there's no need to do so, most people get busy on the proof. So uh, just, you know, being able to change your mind, I think, is, is uh, is probably an underrated uh, thing. 
100% agree. So yeah, it was great chatting, Marcelo. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Tuesday and Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.